From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Luke Gare, Assistant Editor at the Swanee Review, and I'm here today in the Ralston Listening Room with Matthew Baker. Matthew is the author of the short story collections Why Visit America and Hybrid Creatures and the children's novel Key of X. Baker's stories have been published in the New York Times Magazine, the Paris Review, the Adroit Journal, Electric Literature, and elsewhere. Beyond print publications, Baker has several digital projects, including the interlinked novel Untold, the randomized novel Verses, and a cyberzine Codelit. This summer, he is a Walter E. Dakin Fellow at the Swanee Writers Conference. Matthew, I'm stoked to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. So you've been in Swanee for roughly a week, and I'm curious as to how you've experienced the transition from pandemic lockdown to in-person conferences. It's been profoundly surreal yeah, to be um, surrounded by actual human beings again and socially interacting with actual human beings all the time. Yeah, I'd forgotten how to do that. Yeah, I even though this is the only writing conference that I've had a stake in this year, it is super overstimulating to go from spending long spans of time like just sitting in my room or working remotely to being at, you know, like a cocktail hour and having to shake hands and nod and smile along with jokes when I'm still just trying to convince myself that all of this is happening in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> if at all, how has this recalibration impacted maybe not your writing process at the conference, but just your ex- general experiences in the workshop? I think it's felt like a bonding experience because I think everyone else is also going through that same reemergence. And so probably all of us were always quite awkward, but we're all in this especially awkward phase and are sort of like relearning these rules of human interaction together. Um, I think it feels almost like kindergarten in that way. Something that people are more keen to compare the Swanee Writers Conference to is like summer camp, just being like the bacchanalia of running around in the woods and, you know, occasionally having to go to class, but just really being surrounded by a bunch of folks who all want to be there for the same reasons. Sleeping in a dorm room definitely adds an extra layer of surrealism to the whole experience. Yeah, yeah I can't imagine, you know, it's like I'm, I'm only 23 and I graduated college just a few years ago, but walking through a dorm is pretty jarring in my own experiences. So I can't imagine being like a capital G grown adult and going back to your twin bed at the end of a long day. <laughs> but these dorm rooms are quite luxurious, I think. I think so. Where are you, are you staying this year? I'm staying in Humphreys and those dorm rooms feel massive compared to what they had us bunking in where I went to undergrad. People at Swanee are usually inclined to describe Humphreys as a ski lodge. <laughs> Just like the way it's structured and styled. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. (laughs) Um, So your latest collection of short stories, Why Visit America, contains 13 stories where each narrative takes place in an alternate imagining of the United States. In one, a man must find a corporate sponsor for his wedding. In another, a small town secedes from the United States. While these renderings of American life might seem 
otherworldly, there is an uncanny truth or a familiar, unfamiliar present in each one. The final short story in this collection, To Be Read Backward, goes back to 2011 when it appeared in American short fiction. I'm curious as to what led to the conception of this book in the time between then and 2020 when it eventually published. So that story, To Be Read Backward, was the first story from the book that I wrote. Um, And I wrote that story in 2009 um, when I was just starting out grad school. I spent three years in Nashville at Vanderbilt in the program. And by the end of my time there, I've been working on all these short stories. And for my thesis, I had to present the faculty with a short story collection. So I threw all of the stories into a Word doc and met my requirement. But that process, putting all these stories together into a single Word doc, finally forced me to realize that I'd really been working on two separate projects. I had these stories I've been writing that were, maybe the best term would be experimental realism, that were playing with different artificial languages, HTML, music dynamics, math, notations, formal logic. And then I had this other project that I'd been working on at the same time, all of these speculative socio-political stories about the U.S. So after graduating, I started working for the first time deliberately on these two separate projects. And so that first set of stories became my first story collection, Hybrid Creatures. And that was a smaller project. And so was the one I ended up publishing first. But I was working on that at the same time as I was gradually figuring out these stories in Why Visit America. How, if at all, did your time working on this collection impact your understanding of contemporary American social culture? I think it probably did unconsciously in many ways, but what was strange for me was I was writing these stories between 2009 and uh, around 2018. And at a certain point, the real world United States seemed to shift into sort of a parallel universe, a speculative experiment. And I'd enjoyed writing the stories in this book when the United States that I was living in felt relatively boring and unexperimental. But when suddenly I felt like I was living in one of those stories, writing the stories lost some of the appeal for me. You had mentioned hybrid creatures and that you were working on these simultaneously, if I'm not mistaken. I'm curious how your experience went on to shape the development of your latest. That first collection taught me a lot because both of the collections are basically concept albums. I've always been very interested in um, in music and concept albums like Ziggy Stardust or The Wall or Section 80 and So I thought of these books in a similar way. For Hybrid Creatures, um, I actually, I wrote three prototype stories experimenting with these different ideas that I had that I eventually realized weren't fulfilling the full potential uh, for these ideas, at least for me. And so I deleted the prototypes and started over from scratch. If you don't mind me pushing further, what about those three initial prototypes weren't up to snuff? The three prototype stories, one of them was incorporating HTML, 
alongside English. One was incorporating uh, music dynamics and math notations alongside English. And one of them was incorporating formal logic alongside English. But that was the extent of the connection. Structurally, there was a disconnect between those languages and the stories and also in terms of plot and character I think there was a disconnect. So when I set out to write what would become the final stories in the book, it was to write stories in which there would be both that linguistic structural connection, but it would also be hopefully connecting on a deep level with the plot and the characters in the story. When you moved from the three initial prototypes to the full-fledged draft, in the time between the production of these two collections, what in your editorial process or writing process helped you move a little bit further towards, you know, completion? I think honestly, it was the the process of writing those failed prototypes and then taking some time away from them and then revisiting them and reading them with the eyes, not of a writer, but of a reader and seeing what to me seems to be lacking or seeing this unfulfilled potential conceptually in in the stories. The first story in Why Visit America features a lexicographer who writes mirage words. Fictional words with fictional definitions is how you put it in this story. Can you talk about the process of inventing words such as othery or hurden? That was one of the greatest pleasures, I think, of writing this book was getting to invent the fictional words for that story. And something I especially took pleasure in was throughout the story, the narrator provides the reader with fictional words and their fictional definitions, but there are also moments when the narrator references fictional words without providing the definition. And something that's still fun for me as the writer, when I go back to that story and reread it, is just speculating on what those undefined words actually could mean. And I have secret theories, but sometimes those theories change. And even as the writer, I honestly don't know what, I don't have a definitive answer for what those undefined words mean, but that was one of the most enjoyable parts of the project for me. Of course you had favorites, if you wouldn't mind sharing any. There are some that I think at this point, I don't remember. I, but I remember, I believe the narrator references a word north song there's a word hoggle earlier i had written another story that incorporated fictional words with fictional definitions that didn't end up in either of the collections but some people like to do wordle some people like to do crosswords but for me i think that's like a a fun hobby to just sit down and invent new uh, english vocabulary. What does that process usually look like? I honestly don't know where the connection comes from. I don't know how the word suddenly just manifests in the mind. And yeah, I don't know how to explain it. 
I had the pleasure of hearing you read an excerpt from the transition a few days back. In this story, Mason decides to renounce his corporeal form and instead transition to a perpetually online existence, meaning, as you say in the story, that he plans to have his mind converted to digital data and transferred from his body to a computer server. The announcement especially impacts Mason's relationship with his mother. Before we continue, I was hoping you would read the last scene in this story. Yeah, I'd be happy to. The clinic was locked. After buzzing her in, the receptionist asked for her identification and checked a list for her name, and then led her down an empty hall into the operating room, where he had already been sedated. Tears welled in her eyes. The procedure was underway. She wouldn't have a chance to say goodbye. A machine enclosed his head completely, with the rest of his body extending out of the machine onto a gurney. His palms were crossed over his chest. A neon pink plastic wristband identified him for the operators. Aside from a pair of plain white boxers, he was naked. Seeing him in there like that was so upsetting that she almost turned to leave, but instead she wiped the tears from her eyes and forced herself to take a seat on the stool next to the gurney. She leaned her umbrella against the wall, she set her purse on the floor, and then she held his hands in her hands. The operators nodded at her and then went back to work, adjusting dials and skimming scans. There was nothing to do but wait, and the wait was terrible. The constant feeling of dread that she had been living with since his announcement was so much worse than ever before. Rain pelted the roof. Indicator lights blinked. The operators murmured to each other. She kept wondering whether the moment had passed, waiting for some sign that the transition had occurred, but there was no way of telling. Her muscles were tensed, her teeth were clenched, and her dread just kept building. She was bracing for the moment of the transition, squeezing his hands with a tight grip, breathing so fast that she was slightly dizzy, staring at his body, when she became aware of a faint beeping coming from a monitor on the machine. The sound made her think of her phone, tucked into the breast pocket of her uniform with the volume on high. She actually would know when the transition had occurred, she realized. When he messaged her, her phone would chime. She glanced down at her uniform, looking at the bulge her phone made in the pocket, and when she did, the strangest thing happened. She felt a burst of joy, excitement so intense that a shiver passed through her. This sense that she wasn't about to lose him forever, but instead was finally about to meet him, truly meet him for the first time. The feeling confused her, but the longer that she stared at the pocket, expecting her phone to chime at any moment, the stronger that the feeling grew until she was nearly overcome with anticipation. His hands were still warm, but whether the life had left his body yet didn't matter. She felt certain of that suddenly. It wasn't him. It never had been. In this collection specifically, the way you close out each of your stories, there is this hopeful sense of finality. And to hear you read it out loud, I think that as like a listener or a reader, I just felt that even more so. So thank you for reading that. Do you see his mother's eventual acceptance of his transition as a way of reconciling with larger, nonetheless, salient cultural anxieties like adolescent autonomy or media-informed identity politics, artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think the story was designed to be a parable or to be metaphorical. And 
it's been fascinating for me as the writer. I went into the story with certain preconceptions or certain ideas about what the story was saying or represented. But I always love hearing different interpretations or hearing from readers whose personal experiences led them to read the story in a particular specific way that I had never anticipated. I remember about a year after the story was first published, hearing from a reader who had a neurodivergent child who had connected with the story in a personal way, thinking of their own child and their child's relationship to information and human interaction. And there's the more obvious parallel to trans rights or trans issues, the trans experience. And I think those other possible interpretations that you just mentioned are just as valid and fascinating to me. To my mind, the narrative scope of this story is at a very basic level comparable to the coming out narrative uh, in that a young person comes to terms with their own identity, said person reveals these truths to their family, the family then ridicules the individual. So to hear you talk about this story, not necessarily as a definitive parable for a variety of experiences and instead open to interpretation, I think in scope of technology's role in this story and artificial intelligence and things like that. In this story and a few others, your protagonist is a teenager. And I'm curious in your writing generally, and then in this collection, what does this choice afford you? I think a lot of these stories are about identity. I think the United States is perhaps even more than the average society obsessed with the idea of identity, individualism, collectivism. And being a teenager, at least in my experience, is the phase of life when you first have to begin seriously thinking about those issues and making choices about who you are going to be as an individual and how you're going to relate to the collective whole of your society. I think writing about teenage protagonists was a natural move or felt like a natural move for me to make because these are characters who are living through those formative years. Yeah, there's nothing more horrific than teenagehood. And I think that in these stories, the way that you depict those experiences you know, the alterity is a way of both elevating and reaffirming the the nonsensical, the terror, the difficulty of being, you know, 15, 16 years old. Often we confuse the rapid growth of technological development and advancement as an inherently bad thing for human behavior, whether we're referring to labor output or, in this story, face-to-face human relationships. In the transition, though, Mason seems to assert it's not that deep. And I'm curious, how might Mason's own characterological framework interact with your own material value systems? Well, we overlap in certain ways. I've always been obsessed with the internet. For me, there was something profoundly powerful about growing up becoming 
conscious of the world and learning about the world at the moment when the United States and the rest of the world was first getting online and building this international communication system. And I'm not quite like Mason because I love having a body. I do love the pleasures and the pains of having a body and existing in the real world. And in writing that story, I still remember getting to write the long section where Mason's neighbors are trying to convince Mason not to go through with this and are just listing off everything that they love about having a body and about living in the real world. And that came directly from me thinking about what I love about living in this reality. But at the same time, I do feel to some extent the desire that Mason feels to be unburdened by the body and its obligations and the daily requirements and to be free to simply just read all of the time and talk to other people. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. You had mentioned that collectivism and individualism were, at least in the last 10 years, I think that that has snowballed into something much more sinister and unproductive. <laughs> but when talking about teenagehood specifically, I think that for better or worse, there's something necessary about being you know, 14, 15 years old and being in front of a screen and realizing that you're not only communicating with other people, but like slowly coming to align yourself with groups. And then through those experiences, honing your own image as like how you present as an individual. And that's something I didn't really think about until reading this story. Gia Tolentino has this essay, The Eye and the Internet. And I'm paraphrasing here. She says, the internet was not entirely a bad thing. And I think it's really tricky to try to prescribe whether the internet is productive or not based on our own subjective experiences. And then across the line, like the objective American project that has now demanded identity politics and collectivism and then subsequent individualism as well. Generally, when writing about American life, I feel like the personal is achingly bound to the political and vice versa. And in these stories, there's a subsequent tension between the personal and the communal. Do you find that the personal informs the communal in this story? In the transition? Yes. Yeah, I think I approached this project overall, the collection, thinking consciously about 
that tension between individualism and collectivism. And so in many of the stories, that's the fundamental tension or the driving narrative force is the conflict between those two forces. And in the story, in the transition, that is the fundamental narrative engine, I think, is the conflict between what Mason announces that Mason wants to do and what everyone who knows Mason thinks that Mason should do. Testimony of Your Majesty is another textured, complex example of this discourse between personal, communal, or individual versus the collective. This story follows a young woman referred to as Her Highness by classmates who faces significant social obstacles due to her family's wealth, more specifically their high ratio of 9,000 to 1. Would you mind detailing the general stakes of this story before we continue? Testimony of Your Majesty is set in a parallel universe, United States, in Nashville, Tennessee, actually. In a society in which consumerism is flipped upside down and families or individuals within that community are judged based on the number of belongings that they personally own. So, for instance, a person who owns 100 belongings would have a ratio of 1 to 100. A couple who owns 400 belongings would have a ratio of 1 to 200 because there's the two people with 400 belongings. Or the narrator's family in the book, a family of four, has a ratio of 1 to 9,000. And families or individuals in the society with a high ratio of belongings are persecuted in nonviolent ways for this ratio that they have. When I first encountered the protagonist in this short story, I was taken by how her outlook on wealth is written in a way that articulates precisely why object materiality is so endearing, so addicting. Of course, there's pleasure in going to the super mall and tearing plastic wrap off of some dumb thing you find on the shelf. But when putting this story together, I'm curious as to how you wrote a character who simultaneously resists and gives into material consumption. In some ways, her story is identical to Mason's from the transition and that both of these characters feel a strong desire to live in a certain way. But these are also fundamentally different stories because in the transition, Mason announces at the beginning that this decision has been made and Mason is going to go through with this choice regardless of what the community has to say about it. In Testimony of Your Majesty, the narrator struggles throughout the entire story with this pressure from the community and with these conflicting desires, a desire to live a certain way, but also a desire to be accepted by the community and to be loved. In this story, and then perhaps in general, do you see material consumption as 
a personal ill or a societal one? I think human beings are profoundly influenced by each other, by the people we see every day and interact with every day and adapt very quickly to whatever the supposed norm is. And an act that can be an individual ill, I think, can very quickly become a societal ill. If everyone you know, if all of your friends and your family bring a reusable cup to the coffee shop to fill their cup of coffee, you may be much less likely to ask for a disposable cup at the coffee shop. But on the flip side, if everyone you know just asks for a disposable cup and then tosses it in the garbage as they walk out the door, it may never even occur to you that there is another way of living. You know how on Instagram, their infographics, there's like an infographic renaissance. And something I've seen on occasion is like, let's talk about conscious consumerism or let's talk about intentional consumerism. And I always giggle a little bit because that's just fake and not real, right? <laughs> I just There's no such thing as conscientious consumption, at least in America, where you go into a coffee shop, you're just doing what literally everyone else around you is. The decisions that they are making, we, we simply follow suit according to what looks sexy and savory. Your analogy with the coffee shop is is a salient one, and I think a really nice example of how that phenomenon operates. Yeah, there's so much pressure, I think, in terms of consumerism. In You have people in your life that you love. You have your family, you have your friends, and you want them to feel that love. And in society, in our real-world society, a annual way you show that love is on a birthday or on another holiday, showering this person with new belongings, new objects, and not just giving this person new objects, but buying wrapping paper and tape and ribbons and bows to make the object look special when you give the person this object. And if you want to resist that, for instance, because you're questioning the economic impact or the environmental impact of that tradition, you have to do so knowing that these people may not feel this love, that they may feel that they are unsupported or unimportant in your eyes. Your reorientations of contemporary American life are at once sobering and escapist. In Testimony of Your Majesty, for example, wealth is spun in a way that makes such a status symbol feel unsavory or even offensive at certain moments in this story. This configuration, to my mind, both leans into and turns away from the status quo. You had mentioned an inversion, but I'm curious, do you see this collection as one that works to slip out of the American zeitgeist or one that aims to reach its core? That's a brilliant question. And I think ideally, maybe both. To what end? I think if there was anything I was seeking personally in writing the stories, 
it was to become conscious finally of everything about the society in which I had been raised that I had accepted at face value for all of my life and had never been truly conscious of from the beginning. And I think for readers, if readers take away anything from this book, for readers in the United States or readers who are living in a different society on this planet now or in the future, I hope that maybe the book would help them slip out of the unconscious. I'm a very slow writer. I write typically between eight to 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, But I have to write that much. I have to spend that much time writing in order to actually produce anything worthwhile. And so I think um, that's the type of question that maybe I would be able to articulate an answer to in a way that I felt like was deserving of of the question if I like had a few days to sit down and uh, but that is a question with big implications I think on the heels of this story I'm curious to know how materiality informs your own relationship to literary production and art making what does it mean to produce something that will inevitably be consumed or possibly even sold Yeah, I think about that a lot. And as somebody who's worried about the environment, about the climate, I think a lot about bookmaking and book production, just in terms of the number of trees that have to be downed in order to create all that paper. And I know there are many readers who have a undying attachment to paper books, to print books. And to a certain extent, I am one of those readers. Like growing up with paper books, with print books, I have this deep nostalgia for the experience of reading a physical book, of the fragrant smell of old paper for brittle texture of the old paper under your fingers, of the sound of pages flipping under your thumb or like the sight of a row of books on a bookshelf. But at the same time, those worries about consumerism and environmentalism do give me a special appreciation for ebooks. And those questions are questions that I struggle with. And in terms of testimony of your majesty, specifically, the story never explicitly explains how exactly a a belonging is counted as a belonging. For instance, if you have a bed, is the bed one belonging or is it the box spring and the mattress and the sheet on the mattress and the headboard? Is that four belongings? But something I loved about living for a while in that imaginary society was thinking about books, about the massive number of books that I own, and also the massive number of books owned by the public library and how much I had always loved going to the library and having this shared communal ownership. The public library system is, in some ways, I think the most 
amazing accomplishment the United States has ever achieved. I have not ever considered public libraries as an innovation of society and then American society more specifically. It's something I think we take for granted because we get to live in this United States where there are public libraries everywhere, despite that Americans are, I think, still often fundamentally opposed to ideas of shared ownership. But it's interesting to imagine if we lived in a United States that looked almost identical to this one, except there were no public libraries, that if we were writing a short story in which there were public libraries, just these buildings funded by the public that are full of books where anyone can go and just take a book or read a book, it would seem absurd and satirical, almost a, an unbelievable scenario. Well, in, as public institutions and as you have said, they since it's a shared resource, i.e. free, I think that some people are almost less inclined to give into or participate in that sort of shared literacy. Sometimes folks are less inclined to participate in public venues and services simply because there is not a price tag attached. Because then in not swiping your card or you know handing cash over the table you don't have something in your hands that is definitively yours. The goods and services, that sort of circuit, it just in not achieving that, I think that under capitalism, some people are less inclined to see that as success or anything else of the sort. For me, that's maybe the most amazing aspect of reading a book from the library is holding this specific physical object in my hands that hundreds, maybe thousands of other people in my community who, many of whom I've probably never met before, but maybe seen or passed in the supermarket or on the sidewalk or in a restaurant, just seen in passing that we had shared the specific physical object that contains this experience that we would also eventually share now that we had read this book and there's something for me that's so powerful about that and i wish that public libraries weren't maybe the only way that that happened in american society but i am grateful that we do at least have that selfishly i do have a favorite moment from this story would you mind reading this excerpt yeah of course This is from Testimony of Your Majesty. I can imagine now how we must have looked to other families. On a cool spring weekend that year before, torrential rains had fallen across the state, whole feet of water in a day, and the river had surged over the banks, flooding neighborhoods across the city, stadiums, theaters, the honky-tonks on Broadway. Streets had been flooded, alleys had been flooded, houses had been flooded, Basements, bathrooms, kitchens, bedrooms, lawn toys, and porch furniture had floated away with the murky water. Thousands had been left homeless. Before the floodwaters had even receded, other families had organized charities to feed and shelter the victims, to fund the replacement of essential belongings, to help to rebuild the destroyed homes. 
My parents hadn't donated to the relief efforts. My parents did donate to charities, but only for tax deductions to maximize income after taxes and not ever a penny more. Other families donated every last penny possible. There was nowhere in the country as spiritually healthy as the South, nowhere in the nation with such low rates of affluence as Tennessee. Volunteers delivered loads of canned goods to food pantries. Volunteers presented boxes of assorted clothing to new immigrants. Volunteers chipped in to finance the construction of trailer parks for the homeless. Architecturally breathtaking pedestrian bridges spanned the river, crowdsourced by volunteers. Bright daisies and hydrangeas bloomed in enormous flower beds in public parks, tended by volunteers with sun hats. Vibrant berries and squashes ripened in community gardens on every block, watered by volunteers with suede work gloves. Artists funded by volunteers stood on ladders alongside buildings and in plazas, installing colorful murals and gleaming metal sculptures. Engineers, funded by volunteers, walked about in hard hats, surveying the construction of glorious statues and magnificent fountains. Optometrists and dentists and physicians, funded by volunteers, held daily clinics, distributing eyeglasses and toothbrushes and medications throughout Nashville. Living among people devoted to the spirit of social cooperation, we must have seemed monstrously antisocial. We spent staggering sums of money on superfluous belongings, sums of money we could have given to charity, and as much as we spent on superfluous belongings, we had even more sitting in the bank, accumulating interest like dust, pennies to the dollar. By voluntarily financing infrastructure projects and housing initiatives and healthcare programs, by financing the construction of art installations and grand monuments, other families were creating countless jobs, ensuring the health of the economy. We ensured only the health of our personal fortune. I remember once sitting on a carousel at an amusement park as a child, surrounded by the neon lights of the fairground, gripping the mane of the pony for balance, overhearing a group of kids arguing behind me. Why don't we just force people like them to share? That'd be like communism. So? So communism's like crazy. You can't force people to be charitable. That's like the fundamental principle of volunteerism. Charity has to be voluntary. I didn't have to be there in the car days after the fire when other teenagers drove past my house, gawking at the blackened ruins of the burned turret, the massive tarps covering the holes in the roof, flapping in the wind and the rain. I didn't have to eavesdrop on the gossip. I knew what the kids must have said. Burning the belongings was the same as throwing the belongings into a trash can, the same as buying the belongings in the first place. What a waste. Matthew, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at Swanee Review. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.